I always tell people in interviews, like you only need to tell them what they need to know. You do not need to give them the full context for everything. Part of it is, is just helping people self audit when they want to be too honest. And I think I see this a lot with folks who have like mental health disorders or are neurodivergent. There's this feeling because we're labeled as like different and weird, uh, that like you have to overcompensate and be as honest as possible. When in actuality, you absolutely do not. Welcome back to the Career Therapy Podcast, where we explore the hidden side of modern work, help you turn procrastination into job search motivation, and teach you how to stress less, earn more, and change careers with confidence. My name is Martin McGovern, founder and lead coach at Career Therapy, and I'm excited to introduce our guest today. Please welcome Lex Stewart to the podcast. Lex is a career coach, training developer, and gaming enthusiast who helps job seekers level up in their hunt for a new role. Today we discussed neurodivergent job search experiences, including ADHD, anxiety, and depression, what we would change about the job hiring process if given a do-over card, and how to help how self-help can both help and hinder your pursuit of a new role. Thank you so much for your support and for listening to our show. If you enjoy this episode, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes to please the algorithm and share these conversations with more seekers like you. And for now, sit back, relax, and listen in to our conversation with Lex Stewart. I'm very curious to just kind of get a better sense of, you know, when you're talking about the ADHD, the depression and the anxiety that you're seeing, Mm -hmm. what sort of things are you noticing in the, in the job search out there with your clients? Sure. Um, I think depression and anxiety are the ones that I see most prevalent. So the folks that I work with at Turing, as you know, are like literally from day one after graduation until either they, you know, remove themselves from the job search or from seeking Turing support or they find their, their, their first job. And for some people that can be a lengthy amount of time. We actually just had a job seeker who had been searching for over 800 days and got a job last week. So I know (laughs) it was like a huge moment of celebration for this person and for Turing. Like it was really cool to see everyone at Turing know this person and just be super jazzed that they had gotten a job. Um, but after a certain point, it starts to take a toll on you. Like the rejections that you get in the job search can often feel very personal. Like it feels like all of these companies are saying no to me and every part of me, like they don't want anything to do with it. So after a lot of rejections, it can take a toll on people. And especially if you already have depression and anxiety, it's only going to, to go up. Um, I studied a little bit uh, about like the transitional wellness for folks who are coming from school and trying to get into the workforce and how mental health impacts that. And I think the statistic was, um, oh, I can't remember it off the top of my head. The gist of it is even if you don't already have depression or anxiety entering into the job search, you will likely have some form of it. So people are like already having this um, lens of depression and anxiety put upon them, just the act of being in the job search. Um, So the folks that I work with, I think sometimes get into 
like a cycle of burnout when it comes to depression and anxiety. Um, and it's this feeling of, okay, well, I've had two months of rejections. I'm not really getting anywhere. I'm going to take a break. Like, I'm just going to take some time off from the job search, focus on myself and come back in. But what actually ends up happening is they take a month break. And when they come back in, they feel like they're having to play catch up and they're already coming in incredibly stressed after this, like what was supposed to be a nice mental health break for them. And it like expedites their next break. So they end up searching for a little bit. They already come in stressed. They're very anxious. And then they get rejections for maybe a month and then they take another break. And it just kind of like repeats this cycle for a lot of folks. Um, so that's what I see most commonly. And for folks with ADHD, I think it's a lot of the stuff I see is about structure. So like the Pomodoro technique I propose is probably created by neurotypical folks who don't have ADHD. Mm -hmm. um, and so the break in a Pomodoro is really helpful for most people. But a lot of people with ADHD, that's very difficult for them because what you're doing is saying, okay, I know that you were in the flow or working on this thing for 25 minutes. I actually wanted you to take yourself out of it and then put yourself back in in five minutes. And what ends up happening is trying to get back into the next palm is really difficult for people. Um, so it's a lot about structure and productivity and trying to figure out what works for them. Um, and just reminding themselves that they're totally okay and that there are other ways to do things because um, people read and see like self-help stuff and they're like well this has to work for me because Stephen Covey said that it works for people uh, so yeah that's that's kind of the gist I, I I think we'll just keep running with it I love it and, sure, and there's, okay. there's so much in there that I want to dig into um, so for instance uh, just to kind of catch everyone up in case some of these terms are new to folks. Um, yeah. What do you mean when you say neurotypical? Oh, good question. Um, so I, I guess it's easier for me to, to explain neurodivergent. So most people know like the terms ADHD, autism. Um, those are, uh, my gosh, this is not my area of expertise. No worries. So if folks that um, exhibit or exist in the world a little bit differently. I'm someone who I think that I have ADHD. I'm working on getting a diagnosis for it. Um, so like the way that I interact with the world is a little bit different than most people. Um, and so neurodivergent folks, um, like people might know that like um, autistic folks exist in this, in the world and a little bit different than, um, someone who doesn't have autism. And so they might not have the same, like, um, tactile senses. They might not have the same way of like thinking through things and thought processes. Um, so it's like a really bad explanation of, well, I think, typical and but it's important to start digging into, right. Cause these are the, you know, the lived experience of, of folks is typically to look at the world and interpret it the way that you interpret things, right? And right. so if you see people acting differently, the typical response is, well, just do what I do, right? And that's yeah. what a lot of self-help is. Just do what I did. I don't understand why you can't just do what I did, right? Or yeah. when someone's feeling anxious, the typical um, advice is, well, just calm down. I don't know why you don't <laughs> just chill out, like just take a break and calm down. It's just like, you know, there's all these different ways of, going about um, 
improving ourselves, right? If you're going through this, I'm someone with really high anxiety and it, it definitely mm -hmm. impacted my career early on and getting into therapy was hugely beneficial for me to recontextualize, reframe and learn to live with the anxiety and manage it better and then put myself into situations of growth so that it didn't derail me in the future, but it still pops up. It's not like it ever, you know, quote unquote goes away. And I think you're, what you touched on the sort of self-help world really quick. And that's something that I have like a love-hate relationship with very often, yeah. especially being a coach where half of our job is to tell people, here's things you can do, right? <laughs> and so <laughs> we know like what we're advocating is like what works for most people, right? Here's the resume that works for most people and the interview techniques yeah. that work for most people. But then you come across folks who are different than the, you know, the curve of norm normality or whatever. And yeah. you have to adjust the techniques, right? And that's what, you know, hopefully as coaches, we're trying to learn how to do better and better every day is how do I adjust this stuff for where people are at in the process? And so when it comes to that whole world of self-help, what are some of the things that you see that you feel are like the least helpful? <laughs> the things that maybe like mm. people are espousing that just, you're like, I, I maybe appreciate the intent or the ethos, but it just isn't sure. helping people. Yeah. The first thing that comes to my mind is like the very aggressive self-help books that are like, you're effing up and doing things wrong. Do it this way. It's just like, um, Mark Manson, I think is someone mm -hmm. who, who like the way that he, he structures the titles of his book, uh, are very funny to me. I just personally don't love that approach because usually yeah if you're like in need of help and you're going to a book written by a stranger you've never met, likely like you, you'd like some support going through this journey. Um, so Mark Manson's maybe not the best um, version because I kind of like some of his content, but I, I don't love those like very aggressive business titles. Dave Ramsey, the like financial guy also kind of has some of those pieces. Um, I think those are the ones that come to mind. Uh, and for those I, listening, Mark Manson wrote The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. So yes. uh, yeah, a lot of, there's a lot of aggression. And I do think that it's interesting because, you know, there's the practical side of self-help and then there's the mm -hmm. marketing side of self-help, right? Right. And that's maybe what yes. we're talking about here, right? Like, I think the yeah. principles are the same in a lot of the books. Like stoicism is very core to a lot of self-help. Yeah. Even Christian values are very core to a lot of self-help. And there's a lot of like, mm -hmm cognitive behavioral therapy and a lot of self-help, but then everyone puts their own sort of marketing veneer on the top of it. Yeah. And it even makes me think of like, I mean, I, I think of like movies, right. Where there's sometimes a dissonance between the marketing team for a movie and how you see the trailer and then what the actual movie is. Like, I think if any nineties kids are listening, kangaroo Jack is a really good example yeah. of this. We're like, we all think it's about a talking kangaroo, but that is absolutely not what the movie is. Really it's like, it's about. like 30 seconds of the whole movie. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that that's, that's a hundred percent what, what this is. Um, that's a really good point. I also think, um, the assumption that your values are the same as the people reading it sometimes comes through and you like touched on Christianity. I also think a lot of self-help books are written by like heterosexual old white men. Um, and for someone who is not any of those things, it can sometimes be hard to relate to the advice that they give because 
they don't always take into context the situations that people of different experiences have. So like the very large, broad um, blanket self-help books tend to frustrate me. Um, but I think that some of it is like, like the Mark Manson where like, if you open the book, he's going to have some great shit in there, but the cover is a little aggressive. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, on the one hand, it's like, it's good that there's a flavor for everyone, right? Like that's why there's a new self-help book coming out every 10 minutes. But, yes. um, <laughs> but, but at the same time, um, I think it's interesting what you're pointing out, right? Cause everyone has a different background and different, you know, experience and, these books don't include everything, right? And they can't, there's not a, no possible yeah. way that they can. And so I'm curious, like, what are some of the things that maybe you've come across in some of the broad stroke stuff that just doesn't, you know, if it's written by an old white guy from the fifties, like it just doesn't resonate. Are there any certain things that kind of come to mind? I remember the first time that I read, what color is your parachute? There, I, I, it's been a little bit of time since I read whatever year edition it was mm -hmm. that I read. Um, but there were some pieces in there that I was like, well, yeah, this works for you because you have money, sir. Like, <laughs> I think there are some pieces in there. Like, um, I often tell my students that uh, waking up at 6 a.m. just because Elon Musk does it is not really a good way to live your life. Mm -hmm. uh, and someone beautifully pointed out, like, it's really easy to wake up at 6 a.m. if you have a billion dollars. So I, it, some of that is, is kind of what comes through. Um, I think sometimes folks are a little bit blind to their privilege, which I get, like you don't always have the full context, but as someone who can see some of these things, it, it makes me not love it. And that being said, I love what colors your parachute. It's still, it's in this room somewhere, <laughs> but yeah. But, and that's the thing, right? It's like, it's like a cascade, like different levels of privilege or different kind of um, approaches to understanding that too, because right, like there's Elon Musk who sleeps at the office because he has, you know, people that take care of his seven kids or whatever. Yeah. And then there's, um, then there's like going down even further where someone who's just writing from a neurotypical perspective doesn't understand mm. what someone with autism is going through and saying, sure. all you need to do is network and you'll find a job. And someone with autism is going the hell is this networking thing you're talking about? I don't understand it. Right. And that's like, yeah. that's something that as a coach, I've been really, you know, confronted with, with a lot of people that I've worked with. And like, there's so much that I need to learn too. Right. And my own advice. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that, you know, as we realize that these conversations are becoming more public, people are becoming more open. Mm -hmm. um, the, the flip side of that coin is there's also a huge push right now to just put everything out there, put everything online, yeah. right? If you have autism, tell everyone. If you have anxiety, tell everyone. Tell and everyone. I, you know, I grew up in a world where you don't talk about it at all. And I went very much yep. the opposite way. And now I'm like, maybe I talk too much about personal things. Maybe I should <laughs> roll that back in a little bit, right? But there's there's um, a danger in just being too open, right? Because if okay. someone is completely honest with everything going on, there is the potential that that is used against them or that Mm -hmm. um, they will be looked at differently or they will be treated differently or they will be sort of condescended to. Have you come across that at all in, in the work you've done? Oh, I, I can't say off the top of my head whether this has come about, but I, I do think, uh, so I, I lived in Florida previously and I live in Texas currently. In both states, I believe as of today still, um, 
I could be let go of my job for being a queer person. Like being a, a being part of the LGBTQ community in Texas and Florida is not a protected class. So while it is like a federal protected class, state by state, it varies. I know that it's the case for Florida. I'm like 75% on Texas, but that's kind of what that makes me think of, of like, it's unlikely that a company will take the step of firing someone for being queer. It doesn't happen like on a larger scale, but it is possible, right? If you were that open with who you are, that you could be let go from an institution. Um, so it's, I think part of the worry for a lot of folks in some of these places, yes, the people I work with are accepting and maybe like the, the community I surround myself is accepting of these things, but my government is not. <laughs> and there's also just a, a lack of understanding that that still exists in certain places, right? Like yeah, there's absolutely. People think that that happened 110 years ago and nothing is going on anymore. And that's very much right. not the case on, on yeah. a case-by-case basis. And, and even if they don't use that as the reason, quote unquote, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all employment is at will. And this is something that I think a lot of people don't really think about or understand. Mm -hmm. And maybe it was a big wake up call with, um, you know, COVID and the mass layoffs and now the great resignation, Mm -hmm. as it's being called, of people realizing that the security they thought they had in these nine to five jobs doesn't really exist in the way that was sort of promised, I guess. Um, And this at-will employment works both ways to both empower the employee, but also disadvantage them in a lot of ways. But it's kind of interesting to think about how, um, you know, a company doesn't even necessarily need a reason, right? They can Mm -hmm. just, we don't want you to work here today, even if we promised you a a promotion two months ago. Um, What are your thoughts about, you know, the security or lack of security that people feel. Cause I think it plays back into the anxiety mm-hmm. and it plays back into mm-hmm. a lot of these things we're talking about um, where I think a lot of people are really hoping that there's some sort of security that they'll find at the end of the rainbow, right? Whether it's the job search or their career, or something that will be stable at some point. Have you noticed any changes or any thoughts around that in the folks that you've been coaching? That's a good question. I, I think I, I work with the, a unique set of people because I, I feel like a lot of the folks I work with are already kind of clued into this idea. So most of the time, if a student is coming to Turing, it's often because they're at like a pivot point, right? So they've come from the service industry or they've come from education or they've come from somewhere else and are moving into software development. And a lot of the stories I hear from people are the reason they're moving into software development is because it allows them more autonomy and freedom, uh, especially in a financial sense than the other pieces did. Like you might be super passionate about education or your work in the service industry, um, but I've heard quite a few stories where people were let go or you know the wrong person was promoted even though they had earned X, Y, and Z. Um, And that's kind of what inspires a lot of people to come to Turing. So very unique set of folks that I work with. They already kind of know that it's all made up and the points don't matter. Awesome. Who's line reference? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's all made up and the points don't matter. Um, 
So when we're when we're out there talking to folks, what do you find to be the most helpful thing for anyone who has anxiety, depression, ADHD? I mean, you mentioned the Pomodoro technique already, but sure. are there certain ways of looking at things or mindset shifts or reframing mm-hmm. techniques that have been um, especially beneficial uh, with the folks that you've been working with? Sure. I will say that I credit a lot of my like navigation in the depression and anxiety space to my own therapist who I just like take some of the stuff that she says to me and give it to people because it worked. Um, so I also have, I have a lot of anxiety and my therapist kind of framed it to me as anxiety is attempting to protect you. Like part of the reason that it's there is to attempt to keep you safe. And for me as a logical person, that was really helpful to hear because when you exist in anxiety, it doesn't make any sense. Like the thing that you're anxious about, you know, in the back of your head, it's going to be fine. Like there's kind of a, a, at least for me, like there's a part of me that knows in 20 years, I'm never going to think about this thing ever again. I'm not going to think about the way that it made me feel. So hearing that like, it's there to protect you and kind of digging into that has been really helpful for some people. It's like, what is it that I'm, I'm genuinely scared of? Like, what is my, my brain or my body trying to protect me from? And for most job seekers, the answer is usually rejection. Um, and that can come in a lot of different forms. So that's something that I often will kind of move people through. Um, and the other piece, with anxiety is you're doing a lot of like worst case scenario planning. Uh, I kind of make me think of like Dr. Strange in the Avengers where he's like looking at all the different timelines that could happen. That's kind of your brain in that moment. And it's only focusing on the bad ones. (laughs) Like you really don't have the space to think about any of the good shit that could happen. So I tell people to, to, to attempt to think of like, well, what's the best case scenario if this does work out for you, right? Or even like a neutral situation is also totally fine. You know, what what happens if you just kind of break even in this scenario? And um, that's been helpful for some folks. I love that you mentioned the neutral piece because that that's actually like a really big thing that I've been thinking about lately where, you know, job seekers are typically so heavy on the negative that mm-hmm. we have to kind of counterbalance it a little bit by yeah. going a little bit too positive. And maybe that's what a lot of this stuff in the sort of self-help LinkedIn post space. We're like, just go get them and everything's going to be great. And we guarantee your life will be better. And I'm always like, guarantee some people's lives get worse. Um, It seems strong. Yeah. 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 Um, It's like a guarantee coming from someone whose life isn't together. What is that about? But um, Mm. (laughs) there's, there's this interesting thing where we sort of have to counterbalance to get people just to neutral. Like I don't expect people to fall in love with the job search but I hope you can get to neutral with it. And the same thing goes the opposite way. When people get way too excited about an opportunity or way too excited Mm -hmm. about um, a job that they're interviewing for or something like that. I'm always trying to like kind of shit on the company a little bit and just be like, they're not as great as you think. Let's get back to neutral here. Cause if we go too far either way, it can really, you know, the higher we get pulled up, the farther we're going to drop if they reject us right. or if they don't hire us or something like that. So I appreciate you talking about that. And I think it's interesting that you're pulling in some of these, like, um, you know, the Dr. Strange timeline thing, right? Just imagine the one scenario of things that could go right. Because like you yeah. said, the 800 days to get a job, you can still get a job at the end of those 800 days. It's a rough mm-hmm. 800. But what were some of the things that you saw with that person? Did you work with them directly or was it just someone in the, in mm-hmm. the group? 
What was the yeah, I worked sort with of this person journey that they went through? Um, so I, I think this person's journey ebbed and flowed. And I think COVID kind of being in the middle of this person's journey really um, threw them for a loop, like most people. Um, so previous to COVID, this person was job searching and then COVID happened and it felt like there were no jobs available. And now things are starting to open up again. Um, part of the journey was about making sure that you're not too honest in the interviews. And I think this kind of circles back to our initial conversation. Um, I always tell people in interviews, like you only need to tell them what they need to know. You do not need to give them the full context for everything. Um, so I think part of it was that this person was worried that someone would look at the gaps in their employment or that they would look into something and ask a really hard question. And so they were already prepared and anxious about something that had not happened yet. Um, and we kind of worked together to, to mitigate some of those pieces and to remind this person that they were still doing great work. They had like projects, they were doing like contract work, um, but they hadn't gotten their full-time position yet. Um, so part of it is, is just helping people self-audit when they want to be too honest. And I think I see this a lot with folks who have like mental health disorders or are neurodivergent. There's this feeling because we're labeled as like different and weird uh, that like you have to overcompensate and be as honest as possible. When in actuality, you absolutely do not. You only need to say as much as works for you. I love that. Yeah, the way that I've said it to folks is... Um the company is marketing their best self to you. So yep. give them what they give you, right? They're not going to tell you yeah. the last person left this job because we burnt them out and didn't pay them enough. Yeah. They're not going to tell you <laughs> that we fired our entire team three months ago and now we have to frantically rehire. They're going to say, yeah. look at this amazing opportunity to grow your career. So don't go in and tell them I'm insecure about this job and I don't know what I'm doing and I need a lot of help Bad. and training and mentorship. Go in and say, here's what I could do if you gave me time in Google. <laughs> like if you yeah. give me access to Google and enough time, I could do these things for you. So I really appreciate you calling that out because I do think that there's almost an anxious honesty or um, yeah. an oversharing of insecurities or, or any number of ways to phrase it, right? Um, where we think that honesty is this one thing. And, and this is kind of digging into some other self-help books like um, Radical Candor and things like that, mm -hmm. right? Where I'm pretty sure in that book, they go into the nuances of like, what does this mean and how to actually use it? Like, don't be, you don't want to be, some people will say I'm being honest, but what they're really being is like mean, right? Like mm -hmm. just because you're being honest doesn't mean that you're being good, right? And so yeah. some people use honesty in a negative way where they go like, you know, they rip into someone and then they go, I'm just being honest, right? It's like, yeah, right. but you could be honest and tactful, right? And then on the flip side, we've got job seekers who are like overly honest about their insecurities, but it's like, you could be honest about your capabilities without digging mm -hmm. into all this like stuff that should just be in therapy or something like that. And so yeah, when you're thinking about some of those examples of oversharing of honesty, what, what are maybe a couple examples that come to mind? Sure. Um, so I worked with a student, not in my current position, but previously who had, um, PTSD, they were a veteran 
And they disclosed that to me very early on in our coaching relationship. And I was like, great, that's helpful for me as a coach to know that you are, are navigating this. Um, and they had mentioned like a self-reflection after an interview where they had, they talked about their PTSD and being a veteran in that moment. And we had kind of had to have a conversation about the reality of what employers hear when you say that you have PTSD or that you were a veteran and went through a really traumatic experience, um, because that's what they're going to end up focusing on. It's not going to be all of the other amazing answers to the question. It's going to be the, the fact that you mentioned PTSD. So the, one of the hard parts about being a coach for me personally is to like operate in this system of bias and help people navigate that. Um, cause sometimes it really is just like, Hey, this is what someone is going to see if you say that thing. Um, we interrupt today's episode to let you know about Career Therapy's Unstuck Coaching Program. If you're feeling paralyzed by job search procrastination and unsure of what to do next in your career, we're here to help. Each month as a member, you will get access to two one-on-one -on -one coaching calls, unlimited virtual chat with your coach via Slack, invitations to bi-weekly group coaching sessions, and lifetime access to our eight-part job search curriculum. Want to take your search to the next level? Head over to careertherapy.com and schedule a free 15-minute consultation to chat with me today and see if coaching is right for you. Now back to our show. It's so funny how I can agree with someone's opinions on the job search process, but then still have to tell them, I get that that's an accurate understanding of yep. the world but that's not how the world operates, right? Like yep. it's like the job search is so biased. It's so horribly put together. The fact that we have like 10 interviews and two take-home assignments and you'll still get rejected after three months mm -hmm. of interviews. And uh, I was actually recently talking to my parents about this because they listened to one of the episodes and they're asking me questions and they're like, this is not what it was like 30 years ago. And I'm like, you're absolutely oh, right. Really? It is not what it was like at all because mm -hmm. companies just made decisions more quickly, right? It, it yeah. There just wasn't the ability to have thousands of resumes flood through one opportunity. On, like before sure. LinkedIn and these online job boards, people had to mail in or fax in their applications. So of course, you're not going to get as many, right? Just the physical act of doing it limits right. the number of people or the fact that it was regional, right? You were only competing with people in your small town or in your city. Now we're competing globally. Just some random yeah. person in Connecticut is competing with people in New York and California and India, right? And so it is really kind of crazy how things are getting more and more complex. And then we have to, you know, add on these additional things, right? We have um, the most recent thing that was just announced that TikTok is doing resumes. I don't know if you've seen this. Have you seen this? I'm no, what? First yeah. of all, I don't know how to use TikTok regularly, let alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tried to get into it for a hot second. And then I like three hours disappeared from my life just scrolling. And I was like, yeah. I don't have time for this. Uh, like, <laughs> I don't and I don't have the self control for it. Um, yeah. But it is they're doing video resumes. And, and my mind always mm. flips back to this idea of like, cover letters were created because you had to put them in an envelope with your sure. resume so that they knew which job you were applying to because your envelope wasn't tied to a job board, right? Yeah. That makes sense. But then once we moved past fax machines, why do we still have cover letters, right? 
And yeah. then we have resumes, but then they created LinkedIn as a way to negate the resume. Yep, now we need both, right? So mm -hmm. with TikTok uh, video applications, it's like now we need these cover letters, which are from the 70s and 80s. And then we need the uh, LinkedIn profile, which is from the 2000s and 2020s. And then we need these TikTok things for the 2030s and beyond. Like it just keeps getting more and more complex without removing any of the old barriers. And so right. I'm curious, like what impact has that had on your students? Have you seen like people who are trying to brand themselves have difficulties or, you know, just managing mm -hmm. the sheer number of apps that you have to go through to, to do this job search process? I think the, the biggest issue I hear is time. And if you have a resume and cover letter already, like once you go through Turing, everyone has had a resume and a cover letter. So by the time they get to work with me, they at least have those two things and LinkedIn. And so to have like a video application is this third new thing that isn't really structured. They don't always have like ideas around it. There's not a lot of like accessible templates on what I should put in my video cover letter. So we actually had a position that was posted fairly recently in our community at Turing uh, through Slack. And we were talking about why did not enough people apply to this? And the response was that they asked for a video application instead of a traditional resume and cover letter. And for some people that was very scary. Like you're introducing this, this new thing that I've never done before. And the other piece was like the time to put into it because everyone wants their videos to be like polished. They want them to look nice. Um, and then there's a lot of limitations that come with that. So I think it's, it's nice. Like I would personally prefer a video cover letter to a written cover letter, but I also totally acknowledge that like I've navigated more of these spaces than a lot of the job seekers have. And I have some of the tools, so it, it won't seem as scary to me as it is someone who like would like a job soon. Yeah. And maybe it won't be so scary to, you know, younger generations who are much more ingrained in these apps mm -hmm. and things like that, but there's always, you know, that's always a smaller portion of the population than the norm, right? Most yeah. people aren't making videos every day. Like that's just true. Right. And I even remember when I did my first uh, video application, it was for some like world future society. I don't even know what it was, but they were like, put together a one minute video. And I must've yeah. made 40 different videos to try and get it yeah. down to a minute. Cause like, you don't realize how short a minute is until you try mm -hmm. and say your pitch in a minute. And I remember it was, it took almost a whole weekend and I'm someone who makes videos on a fairly regular basis. And I had anxiety with it. And like, yeah. I remember that there's a new thing in the sales world where they do, instead of doing a first round interview with a real person, it's, um, the video template interviews. Have you come across these yet? Yeah. Is it kind of where they'll just give you a question and then you like asynchronously answer it? Yeah. They give you a prompt and then okay. you hit record and you have to answer the question yeah. and then they come back and watch it as a team later at some point. And sometimes mm -hmm. they give you multiple like unlimited re, re, re attempts, but sometimes they only give you like one or three. And so if you mess up, like that's what it yeah. saves. And I remember the first time I did one of those, it had a countdown in the top corner of 60, 59, 58, oh. 57. And I was like, again, I'm someone who makes video pretty regularly. Yeah. And I was like having a full on like, 
but by the end of it, you're like just speed talking. It's it's really crazy how like, you know, and then we take people who are neuro, you know, neurodivergent and we try and say like, Hey, you know, you have, you have difficulty holding a conversation in a networking, in a, like a networking event. Now yeah. go do this under in, mm-hmm. immense pressure. And, and it's for a job, like a coder, like most coders, even if they're extroverted, don't feel a need to like, you know, be the most in your face marketers and salespeople. Right. right? And so how do you sort of help them navigate that side of things? Right. Cause there's, there's the actual skill of the job. And then there's the skill mm-hmm. of the job search. And we teach people the skill of the job search, but sometimes it's so far removed from their job. Like maybe a marketer or a salesperson yeah. is a little bit closer tied in, but like a coder, what, what are your sort of, what are the things that you say to them or the things that you notice as they're trying to like learn this new skill? Mm. I think the thing that I have noticed is folks that come from sales and marketing tend to do better in the job search because they already have some of these these skills um, from previous industries and folks who come from like stem i would say almost specifically like if you're coming from a non-interpersonal communication focused field tend to have a a steeper learning curve Um, Because for a lot of people, the question is like, well, why do I have to do this? This really isn't going to be like, why does this matter at the end of my job? Like this doesn't connect to the position I applied to. Um, And it's that response of like, well, if you'd like to work for this company, these are the hoops that you have to go through and we can work together to navigate those. Um, I think for folks that do struggle with like selling themselves, talking about accomplishments and results, it's really helpful to give them time to like brainstorm or prompts because just asking the question of tell me about your greatest accomplishment for, for some folks is like a deer in headlights. It's mm-hmm. like, well, what have, what have I ever done? I've never accomplished anything, but if you can give them like some structured prompts space to brainstorm, they can usually come up with some good ideas. And then I have them just literally keep that either on a word document or a physical sheet of paper. as kind of like a reminder that they've done great things and they can continue to do great things. Um, and that's been helpful. Yeah. I appreciate you bringing up the pushback that they say the the phrase "Why do I have to do this?" and "Why does it matter?" comes up so much, and it would be. I mean, I try to have empathy because, like, honestly, like I come from marketing and and advertising and a little bit of sales, and so like I learned pretty early on, like if I don't figure out my anxiety and learn how to communicate, the rest of my career is going to be much much harder, and so sure. like when I realized that I dug in, you know, full on and here I am being a career coach now, but um, it, it's interesting. Cause like, I could only imagine if I was going in for like a sales job and they started asking me to do like arithmetic, I'd be like, what, why would I need to yeah. learn arithmetic or like, Hey, you're going to do some social media marketing and you're going to make videos. All right. Here's a calculus exam. I'd be like, mm-hmm why what is going on this doesn't make any sense and like that must be how people feel I really do think that at the end of the day that must be how coders and you know designers feel sometimes when they're like I feel like you're asking me to learn how to speak Greek when I'm just trying Mm -hmm. to you know get a job and yep um, when you think about it from that perspective like we do as coaches have to say like I understand but also these are the hoops but like, yeah. what are your sort of thoughts on it? Like, if you could change things, what, 
what oh, would you gosh. what would you where would your brain go <laughs> i didn't know this is such an existential philosophical oh, podcast for sure. that's all we do <laughs> Uh, well, I would throw the current one in the garbage and we would just start from scratch. Um, I, I think back to, so when I was in, in my master's program, I got to interview the vice president of student affairs at my undergrad. Um, and when I spoke with him, I, this conversation is, stuck with me forever. He was talking about higher ed. And I think that this to me applies to the job search. He was uh, essentially saying when... Apple was created, it was a really big deal for computers because Microsoft was building off of a pre-existing platform and Apple was kind of this new version, like it didn't use the pre-existing platform and that's why Apple is so successful. And he used this kind of analogy of Apple and, and Microsoft to uh, allude to the issues within specifically in this moment, higher education, like higher education is a system that's formed around like it primarily like religion, like that's kind of how higher ed started, but it's also like straight white men with money. That's kind of like the whole thing in the beginning. And to build a system off of that and then make it bigger is only going to make the initial issues larger. So I think that that's kind of the issue with the job search currently is, is this very similar idea of, it was kind of created problematically. Like I think of the word professionalism, which is a made up social construct. It doesn't mean anything because um, professionalism in different spaces means different things. Professionalism is a word used to keep people of color and queer people out of spaces. Like that's coded language. So I think a lot of the structures of the job search are kind of founded in what I'll call problematicness. So I, I would just take it all we'll do a quick dump in the garbage and then we'll take it to the whiteboard and we'll start again. Um, Cause even like applicant tracking systems, I talk about this with my students a lot where I like, I get why it exists. I totally understand. It's hard for hiring folks to like sift through a bunch of resumes, but on the job seekers end, it is almost nothing but a disservice to most mm -hmm. people. So I just, well, and according so, to recent articles, it's a disservice yeah. to the companies because there's, it's eliminating 80% of applicants, many of mm -hmm. whom are very good for the job, but because we're just basing it on keywords and nothing else, we're mm -hmm. missing out on that organic understanding of like, oh, well, wait a second, this person might not fit the box, but they would do a great job, which is most hiring when you think about it, like yep. most hiring is through networking and through networking, the job requirements mean a lot less. And then you're like, right. oh, I just met the, like the best case scenario with your resume is you send it to someone you've already talked to. They look at it for like three seconds and go, good enough. All right, let's yeah. talk. Like that's the <laughs> ideal situation, right? And, and, yeah. and then the opposite end of that is the applicant tracking system that says your resume is the end all be all. And if you don't have all the right words in here, we're going to ding you. And that I agree with you. Like it's so um, algorithmic decision making is not good yet. <laughs> it's not, not to mention that like there are some systems that that have difficulty parsing PDFs. PDFs a very commonly used format to send documents. 
like Jobvite, for instance, cannot consistently parse PDFs. So when my students come to meet with me and they're like, well, everyone looks at my resume and says that it looks great, but I'm not getting very many interviews. My first thought is usually like, well, you're submitting as a PDF. So it's kind of a gamble. Yeah, That's insane. That is an insane thing. It that can't read doing. double columns either. It reads it straight across. Tables. And, and if you send a Word doc and they don't, they have a Mac, they can't open it. And then it looks like crap on that. It's like, there's oh. just this cascade of like issues that's arising. So every solution that we implement just creates thousands of new issues. And it's hard for folks to keep up, right? Because new things yeah. like TikTok video resumes are coming out every single month, right? And every company just wants to seem innovative. So they keep jumping to these new things. Um, and someone made a point once that I thought was fascinating. It's like someone who didn't get hired through an applicant tracking system is the one who implemented the applicant tracking system. And that, that just like blew my mind. I was like, oh, that's so annoying. <laughs> um, and so I, I, you know, there are some people trying to fix it. And this is kind of where I get into interesting discussions with people because you know we can focus on how bad it is and how messed sure. up it is all day and again as coaches we have to go it, it's almost it's almost that sort of accept the things you ca you're you can't change and have the courage right. to change the things you can right it's like at a certain point we have to realize like yeah all right so this is how it is I'm not powerful enough to change the whole system maybe someday I'll be able to hire people and I'll do a better job but I don't know. I've been on the hiring right. side. It's hard. And, um, and the question becomes like, now that I'm here, what are the things that I can do? Right. Cause there is, mm. there is a lot that is within the applicants and the job seekers control. Right. And so mm -hmm. what are some of switching over to more of the positive side? What are yeah. some of the good things that you've seen? The things people have been able to accomplish using these technologies mm. or the things that people are leveraging in really great ways. I actually had, this happened like a month ago, I think one of my job seekers, I connected with um, Kingmakers. It's a, con a company I, I do contract work for, where I facilitate online board games with them. I had mentioned this in passing to a student, or they had looked at my LinkedIn and saw that I worked at a board game company. And in our session, they were like, whoa, this is cool. You can work at a, you can do this. And we had a conversation about it. And it turns out this person is deeply passionate about board games. Like that's their whole life. And when they found out that there was potentially an opportunity to work for this organization, they spent a weekend putting together a five minute video about themselves, uh, like detailed, like the ways that they could assist the company, what they've done in the past, their passion for board games. I did an introduction between the two and then, uh, you know, he, this person took it from there. Um, and the company was like ecstatic because this person like took the initiative, a position does not currently exist. Like there is no open position. They were just so excited and passionate about this company and this idea that they did it themselves. And now the company is like really excited about this person and is trying to figure out like, what would it mean monetarily wise to bring this person on? Um, so that's like a, a cool success story. Cause I think most people don't get to that point. Like we self-select so often that like, especially if a position doesn't exist, uh, where I think a lot of people are like, well, I won't worry about this. So I'll, I'll just wait until a position opens. 
Um, but that was really amazing. When the student sent the video to me, my jaw like dropped. I thought it was just going to be like a cute talking head video where they were doing um, just like a an introduction. And they had like an overlay of the board games they played. They filmed themselves uh, like with their mom teaching her how to play backgammon. It was amazing. Um, so that was a really successful thing that I've seen recently. That's incredible. And it just yeah. really, it really just drives home the importance of being able to communicate, being able to tell mm -hmm. stories and things like that. And, you know, if there's one concession I'll make with the points we we're making earlier, I think, you know, if someone is trying to get a coding job and they're being asked to learn how to communicate better, right? Sure. It seems disconnected, but at the same time, like that is also how you connect with coworkers and get projects done and, you know, yeah. coordinate different things. So there is, there is plenty to, there's never a downside in being able to communicate with folks on a better, sure. more, more personal way. And that is just so cool taking it to that level and, and putting it into that format. Um, yeah. When it comes to uh, the gaming world, because I know that's another area that you're, <laughs> we didn't get to dig into very much, but I definitely yeah. wanted to. Is there anything that you've learned from gameplay that has, you know, impacted your views on mm. careers or the job search or, or how to approach these things? Like, I, I know sometimes people think about it as like building up the skills to be bigger and better bosses as you go. But what, sure. are, what are maybe some of the things that you could pull from the world of games uh, that oh. might help people rethink the job search? Um, I, I lead a small group coaching session with folks who have ADHD and all of them are gamers. And so to me, it's been very helpful to like, we can just speak similar language. Like I can use analogies that they're actually connected to and excited about. And one person was talking about how they feel the need to, so in Turing, we have a curriculum of, of professional development and there's deliverables, there's things that you can do. We provide a lot of resources and guidance. And this person was talking about how it was really helpful to get all of that, but what in their mind uh, looks like resources actually turns into a checklist for them. So they then become tasks and goals that they feel like they need to do. And so they're what we in the gaming community called a completionist. Like you want to earn all the trophies. You want to like get that bar all the way to the top of 100% having completed all the things you think you need to do. Um, so that's something that I've kind of brought over from the gaming world is like the concept of being a completionist and how you don't actually have to be a completionist. You don't have to do every single piece that we talk about. Um, we also talked about the distraction in your main quest to get a job by side quests. So if you've ever played like an open sandbox game like Skyrim or um, even some of the later Dragon Age games, there is a main story. So you're, you're presented as the main character and there is a, a main story that goes throughout the whole game. But as you go through the game, there are also side quests that come up. You'll be walking down the road and a woman will say, help hero, help, there's a fire over here. And you go help them. So you get daunted by the amount of side quests that pop up. Like as you move through a game like Skyrim, there's an ungodly amount of side quests. And if you're a completionist, it can be very difficult to not see those side quests as also things you need to complete. So the analogy this person gave was in order for me to work out, 
a routine they want in order to be like healthy. They feel like it's, it's something that helps them work throughout the day. I need my water bottle. So in order to work out, I need water bottle, but water bottle is upstairs. And on the way to upstairs, you see the laundry hamper full of dirty laundry that could be washed. And so you go wash the laundry. And then when you're in the laundry room, you realize that the floor is really dirty. And so you grab the broom and go sweep the floor. And so you're constantly like, you have these side quests that are distracting you from your main quest. In this instance, working out. Um, so we talked a lot about how to use video game logic and like video game analogies to navigate our, our lives. Um, and I've been deeply researching how to gamify the job search because no one likes job searching. No one is like, yes, finally, I get to search for a job. (laughs) It's not very fun or exciting to people. So I've been looking into what it would mean or like what it would look like to gamify the job search um, more specifically for folks at, at Turing. But I just think it would be fascinating and deeply helpful for people to gamify some components of this so that they can like look back at their trophy board of all the cool shit they've done. Because oftentimes people in the job search, their number one goal is to get job but that's never complete until you get job. Mm-hmm. So um, having some gamification elements in there can be helpful and maybe motivating for people. That's incredible. I absolutely love that. And it reminds me of, have you ever come across uh, the Healthy Gamer channel on YouTube no. and Twitch? Definitely check it out. Dr. K, okay. um, he talks about uh, mental health, but with a lot of the same kind of vernacular you're talking about. Okay, um, I'm so jazzed. Yeah, everyone should definitely check that out as well. But Lex, this was an absolutely incredible conversation. Thank you so much for joining us and digging into yeah. these topics. So much fun. Um, where can folks find out more about what you're doing and follow along? Sure. Um I stream action and horror games on Twitch. It's just a beautiful segue from career coaching <laughs> to, to gaming. Um, I am at Lex Survive on Twitch. So it's just L-E-X and Survive, all one word. Um, and then I have social media, which is Lexetera, uh, just the worst name to attempt to verbally communicate <laughs> to people. Um, but it's my name, Lex, and then Cetera, kind of like et cetera. Um, and that's on Instagram and Twitter. Awesome. We'll link those below as well for folks who are interested in connecting with you. And again, thank you so much. These are, these are insights that I think will be invaluable for folks. So I'm so happy you shared them. Cool. Thank you so much for having me, Martin. It was great to get to talk to you more. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode today. I really appreciate your support of what we're building here at Career Therapy as we continue to try and explore the hidden side of modern work and tell some of the stories that maybe don't get enough light shed on them. If you enjoyed what you listened to today, I hope you will leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, Subscribe to this wherever you're listening or watching on YouTube, Spotify, etc., And uh, share this with some friends who you know are going through similar experiences and looking to build their career and, and gain some insights along the way. Again, thank you so much for stopping by, and I wish you the best. I'll see you on the next episode.